This is my Ikuruaka, Stories of Haputanga. This podcast was produced by Hapai Te Hauora with support from Noku Te Ao Like Minds. Whakaitia te whakawhiu i te tangata. Support include and empower our whānau experiencing mental health challenges during Haputanga. In this kōrero, Jess and I sit down to talk to Stacey Morrison, who is a media broadcaster here in Aotearoa. Stacey shares the births of her three tamariki, which she did on the ancestral whenua. She talks about overcoming a miscarriage and how they grieve and celebrate the life of their baby. And she talks about the integral role that Te Reo Māori plays in raising their children. Uh, no maua te honore nui te atanei, a te noho tahi ki a koe, me te whakawhiti kōrero, um, nā reira ai, tēnā koe. Tēnā kōrero. Mai mai, haere mai. Kia ora, I feel like we're in the wrong, um, we're on the wrong side of the mic this morning, Lizzie. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> We've got the beautiful Stacey Morrison with us here um, to share some beautiful kōrero about her journey as a mama and all her other pōtai that she wears. Tēnā koe. Kia ora, tātai. So maybe to kick off, um, would you like to tell our listeners, our whanau, about who you are and where you're from? Hi, tēnā koutou katoa, ko Stacey Morrison tōku ingoa, he uri no tamate kapua, no te aroa tūhaurangi uh, tūwharetoa Ngāti Wāhiao, no te tahau tōku paua no Ngaitahu hoki, uh, Ngāti reake huki wairewa, no reira tēne kamahi, mai oha kia koutou katoa, Tokotoru aku tamariki. I have three children, Hawaiki, uh, Kuruwaka and Mayana, and also a baby. Uh, let's recognise in my, my Portuguese name, Mayana. Uh, that's the dual current that brought Te Arua Waka uh, to Aotearoa. And um, the other current that that went with it, or goes with it actually, you can see it around Arutonga, is Maya. And our Papa Farehuya described how um, Te Arua Waka was looking to go on Maya and that wasn't the right time. And so then Mayana was the, was the right current to bring us to Aotearoa and I thought that was a nice way to remember that um, another baby flows with our whanau and so their wairuas recognised in Mayana's name that this wasn't the right time. Uh, but that's a current that flows with our whanau as well. So toko pia. Akutamariki, mm-hmm. I can say, yeah, have another baby that you just can't see, but but uh, that baby's with us too. Mm. Beautiful. Um, so should we start from your first boy then? Uh, when did you find out that you were happy with your first boy? Yeah, so uh, we were married in 2006 in January and he's born November 2006. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so <laughs> there wasn't much waiting around. Um, I do remember finding out where my husband was going to be um, and I just went up to him at the shops, like he just parked his car, and I just showed him a positive pregnancy test and he was like, already? <laughs> so, um, yeah, we were blessed with him pretty quickly and because I'd been staunch about the fact that I did want to be able to drink champagne on my wedding day and then um, Hawaii came along and so really fortunate and um, maybe that's why by the time I did have a miscarriage I felt, you know, I'd, I'd been a little bit privileged, you know, like I'd had good um, fertility experiences and carried well and um, so with Hawaii, um He's 13, oh no, almost 14, 14 next week. So um, that was really a rewriting of the script for us in many ways. And we went, okay, we're only going to speak Māori to this baby right from when he's in the womb and to karaki every day and uh, and especially at night and and looked at what his name would be. And Scotty had actually always thought of two names, Hawaiki and Kurawaka. And then in consultation with our kaumatua, Papa Farehuia Milroy, he also, you know, talked about, Hawaiki, um, Hawaiki Nui, Hawaiki Pamamao can talk about his long journey that has come to being, um, and how all of us and all of our tamariki have have been uh, the product of all of the generations of tupuna that come together for any baby to bring us here. So yeah, he was um, he was a beautiful baby to carry, and you know, being a boy, he was quite 
um, active and he was good size for me because I'm small. Um, so with my torso, it's like about the size of a 13-year-old and so it can all out. I was basically just, just puku. And, uh, yeah, and his birth was um, a really good opportunity for me to look at how I wanted to carry and wanted to birth. And one of the important things for us was, yes, having the reo Māori as the first language, which was not something that we'd ever grown up with ourselves. Mm. But also um, for me, because um, my mum died when I was 27 and she was only 45, I didn't have any of that nurturing, mm. you know, of um, like I'd say to my dad, how, how big was I when I was born? He goes, I don't know. But I remember that the nurse is real pretty, you know, things like that. <laughs> That's helpful, Papa. <laughs> and um, midwives say things like that too. They say, what happened to your mum or how was your mum's placenta? And I go, I don't know. Because mm. I didn't think of asking any of those things when she was alive. Mm. And so that's why I was very much the mama who went out and researched things and learned how to do hypnobirthing. And I really wanted to, uh, I guess, formulate for myself what, what my birthing experience could and, and could be like and I wish for it to be like yeah um so how long was your mum gone when Hawaii was born oh that's about um five years I think I think it was 32 mm. when I had Hawaii mm. um and we also decided that we'd have him and our children in Rotorua we live in Auckland but we wanted to have our babies in our whenua tāngaingai where we come from mm. so that they can be born with their tupuna a um, you know, we had, that's our, that was our perception of it and quite important. And my husband always points out on their passports, he goes, see, Rotorua. And I was like, yeah, I was there. <laughs> I know. I did the work. <laughs> yeah. So um, that involved us going back to Rotorua, which we were doing a lot anyway, but for my midwife appointments. Mm. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So do you have to go down every time you couldn't do them over the phone? I guess how can you do a scan over the phone? Yeah. You had to drive down every time you had your appointment. I, did, I think I might have had some scans up in Auckland. I think I had scans here and then they just get sent to the midwife. Mm. Um, Tuya Mahi, my amazing midwife. So I, I found it really easy. And also it's interesting how I didn't have my mum around um, and Tuya is not that old, but she did feel like a motherly mm. figure. And mm. I just, I love midwives as a kaupapa. You know, if I didn't do this, it's something I I would uh, aspire to do. I don't know if I could do it, but I just think the whole act of wahine supporting wahine mm. to give birth and to do something that we've that our bodies are made to do is beautiful. So I never would have considered an obstetrician unless I really needed to, mm. and especially not a male one. I'm like, mm. oh, what would you know? And um, <laughs> I loved how midwives could say, it, you know, it might feel like this, you know, things like when I was um, feeding and especially with our second baby, I couldn't believe, like, sort of like having contractions when you're feeding and, mm. and you know, because the uterus contracts so strongly. Mm. So, yeah, I just really appreciated a midwife could tell you all those things and what it actually felt like as a wahine. Mm. Definitely. Um, talking about the support that you received in that pregnancy, it sounds like your midwife was really helpful and you were obviously still grieving the loss of your mum. Did you still feel her or sense her support there, even though she wasn't there physically? My mama? Yeah, yeah I did. I did. Um, and I called upon her for strength as well. I really probably, the, the biggest visit I've ever had from her is on my wedding day, which I thought was beautiful, but I thought there were other times I really needed you to. <laughs> I was happy on that day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I had enough the, people was, around. Yeah, that was the most beautiful day. But, yeah, I felt like she literally woke me up and I just felt all of her light and it was beautiful. But, yeah, no, I, I felt that. And I knew my mum was only 17 when she had me. And so there are lots of things I wish I could tell her that I understand a bit more now. Mm. Oh, my gosh, poor thing. 17, awful birth. I was... Uh, I was dragged out with forceps. I was a colicky baby. Um, it was really hard for them financially. I was a nightmare. <laughs> My poor mum. So, yeah, that's the other thing is, yeah, I'm really aware of um, that I was able to make those choices mm. resources-wise. And mm. also I, what I discovered is I um, just sort of interacted with the health system how I wanted to. So I wanted to go to Rotorua. It wasn't a big deal at all. Mm. Um, and we, I've had all of my kids in through a hospital, even though I lived up here. Mm. Uh, in terms of details, I don't remember it being a, a, a 
logistical nightmare. I don't think there's many people who've done it. Um, mm. And, yeah, I did have to drive to Rotorua in labour with our second child, but <laughs> I wasn't driving. So. <laughs> <laughs> And so with the labour of your first boy, how did that happen? Can you walk us through? Yeah, a funny story because we went to Rotorua uh, two weeks early to be mindful of the fact that he could come any time. Firstborn, don't know what's happening. And um, so that meant that Scotty would do te karere out of the Rotorua office. And it looked a bit it looked a bit hakari to be fair. But, um, <laughs> but then I was doing auto cue while I was in labour. So I was having contractions and trying to do his auto cue to give him the words to read. Oh <laughs> it was a bit... Breathing, breathing, breathing. <laughs> and, um, and it was funny too because I went in to help him a few days after I'd given birth and the ladies who'd been seeing me for the days, they're like, oh, you still haven't had your baby. And her friend was like, she's definitely had the baby. You can tell that she's smaller. <laughs> and um, so, yeah, I, I think my son is born on the 18th of November, the day before his papa's birthday on oh, the 19th. Beautiful. But, yeah, I feel like if I had had more experience, he would have been born on the 19th and I wouldn't have been in such a rush. So um, Hawaii's birth was slightly more challenging in that he had to be moved in, into position with a fontu so that I could push him out. But apart from that, um, I've had, you know, beautiful um, vaginal births and one unplanned water birth uh, with my daughter. Yes, she unplanned everything. <laughs> she, she was the one that I had to drive to Rotorua in labour. So, yeah, um, but... I feel really fortunate for that. Mm. Um, and that was because my midwife was just open to it. So the reason I had an unplanned water birth with Kuruwaka is because she said, um, you know, I've been going, labouring for quite a while. She said, yeah, no, you're eight centimetres. You've got an hour and a half, two hours to go. And I was like, oh, man, I felt really, I thought I was closer. I got into the water, um, this beautiful waiariki, the thermal water of Rotorua, which you can turn the taps on in the birthing unit there and it just comes straight out of the pipes, which is beautiful. And um, I basically got in there and said to Scotty, I'm going to, she, she said, you know, push the buzzer if you feel like you need something, but I'll just be down here. And um, she left and I went, I'm going to push now. And Scotty's like, what? what are you doing? And, um, yeah, so I, she said, can you get out? She came back and said, can you get out? And I said, no. And she said, okay, we'll have a water birth. And um, and I went from eight centimetres to birth in five minutes. Wow. So that was what the that was what the way Atiki brought on, basically. Wow. They know mm. when and how they want to come. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just got to go with the flow. Yes. Well, yeah. Especially, I, I also like um, looking at how a baby's birth sometimes tells us about their personality. This is so, one thing that's yeah. come up in another corridor. Yeah. Mm. Another another mum I talked to shared how um, the birth themselves was a signal of what the baby was yeah. going to be like, particularly the stubborn ones mm. or the fast ones. My baby um, came on her due date. Yeah. On time <laughs> and without fail, she is a clockwork baby. I'm like, oh, six o'clock time for yeah. Wow, mm. I don't have any of those. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, for Kuruwaka as well. That's so her. She's cruisy, lovely pregnancy, and then she's just like, and I will come today. Yeah, and I will do this right now, <laughs> right now. Thank you very much, and I'll do it my way. Yeah. And um, that's her. So she got a cool birthday, eighth of the eighth. I wait. Um, so, yeah, she just, when she has plans, it's happening. Yeah. Still here. Beautiful. <laughs> and then with Mayana, with the, um, my, my girl who's now eight, um, that was probably my my dream birth scenario. And she came literally on Labor Day. So I was laboring on Labor Day. I wanted her to come then um, so that Scotty and Hawaii didn't have to go back to Auckland and um, didn't go until the last minute till I, I felt like going through the door of the hospital, like she I could maybe not make it inside. Um, but then just, uh, you know, all of my hypnobirthing came in. Um, I was able to labour how I wanted to on my knees. And uh, she, yeah, she really was kind of exactly what I'd hoped for. Mm. And um, I felt a lot more, yeah, I just felt like this is what I've maybe been 
hoping for for a long time. And and, and my second one as well. Was, the only thing with Hawaii is that he got a little bit jammed, but he still, mm. you know, came out. We didn't have to have a C-section, didn't have to have an epidural, which I'm actually quite scared of. Yeah. I've never had one, and I know some people love them. <laughs> I'm really scared of them. Mm. So, yeah, my thing was about engaging in my uh, power as a wahine to give birth and to stay in my breath and to mm. understand what breath does for us and the places I could put it in my body, mm. you know, to help me. Is that what you learned in hypnobirthing? Aye. What's, what, what's hypnobirthing? So, you know, when you think of hypnotising someone, mm. it's kind of like using your uh, brain and putting yourself in a place, and I believe also in in a way to a sense, to be um, able to focus on what you want to rather than um, getting caught up in what's happening to you. Uh-huh. Yeah, so um, the way that they talk about contractions is like waves rather than um, pain. Yeah, yeah, so rather than pain, it's like you feel surges, you know, those kind of things. And mm-hmm. then I kind of developed my own way of um, managing pain. So it's just a really strange little thing where I'd um, move the fingers on my hand one by one and I'd close them slowly and then I'd open them slowly and really focusing on that was like for me it was like a I guess having that little button that you push for pain relief that was mine yeah so I just developed it myself and so I ended up seeing my husband putting his hand up and doing it as well you know like to prompt me um so yeah it's a lot about engaging with your partner and then finding a place to do so to help so we went and did a hypnobirthing course and then I also had body scans and things that I'd listen to, podcasts and things like that. So on the way to um, Mayana's birth and uh, I think all of them, I was listening to like an affirmation and a, a, a guided um, corridor around what was happening with the baby mm-hmm. and how I could help my body open up mm-hmm. and be ready for birth. Yeah. Is that what the hand thing signalised? Is it like a visualisation of you opening up? Well, for me, because I just developed that wasn't necessarily one that was caught. For me, I just focused so hard on doing that that I wasn't focusing oh, on any pain. So it's like distraction. Yeah. Yeah, yeah but it, like so, I mean, it's really important to me that anyone doesn't feel like, oh, wow, okay, well, I was all about um, pain relief rather than that that's cool whatever it works for you is really really important and I'm mm-hmm. not about us shaming each yeah. other as women but you know I was um slightly I was older as in my 30s I totally planned and wanted to do this and mm-hmm. I didn't have I, I had a supportive husband mm-hmm. I wanted uh, this was my best case scenario if it didn't work out I would have had all the interventions to have a safe baby. Mm. Yeah, because I guess that's one thing I've always been mindful of more than maybe others is that one of my close friends, Hinuahi Mohi, um, has a daughter who has uh, severe cerebral palsy as a result of medical misadventure at birth. So she was um, a completely um, healthy baby until birth and she was stuck in the birth canal for 15 minutes without oxygen. So that's why mm. she has cerebral palsy. And so I can see for Hinawahi, she, she has a, a level of worry about friends when they're birthing more than other women do. Mm. And it's hard, you know, you want to keep that in check and not project it. But I've always been mindful of I would do whatever I need to do to get baby out safely. Yeah. Mm. Um, and and you talked in that corridor about your birth and how Scotty was supporting you. If he was here, I would ask him, what was your role? What do you think he would say? Well, I, I, yeah, I, I can predict some things he says in the world, but not everything. <laughs> but um, True. he, I, I think he really um, facilitated, you know, my strength and um, supported me physically and spiritually. You know, I'm really grateful for his um, ability to support us and others uh, spiritually. So karakia and um, mihi. So when, you know, baby came out and we do, you know, all the tohi and everything that helps us feel um, that we've honoured this life that, that mm. we've, we've had um, brought to our whanau. So that, but also he... Um, Physically, I did say to him, I was like, I, I really hope you appreciate how low to, low maintenance I am. Because <laughs> um, physically, you know, like I, 
I was able to keep fit. I was yeah. able to be strong. Mm. Um, so he really was just, uh, he followed my lead quite a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, he didn't put anything on what should be done. But say when um, when we lost our baby, so I had an early um, miscarriage in the first trimester, but had a really bad experience, unfortunately, with um, the radiographer, which was in Auckland. And so she said, uh, you know, both of us knew enough because this was our third pregnancy to know that things weren't looking quite right. We're going, where is the heartbeat that we saw a couple of weeks ago? Mm. And um, she said, I I can't see a heartbeat. And then... That's all she said. Yeah. Yeah. And then she... When I started crying, she said, you need to stop crying because I can't, you know, you're moving too much and I can't get a read. And I was like, I I need a minute. And I think in other situations, my husband would stand up for me, but I think he was just so shocked. He, I could just see him um, not knowing what to do and Mm. just all of it, both of us, um, we're just feeling it all come crashing down and you just feel like this potential and this baby that you thought you were going to have is gone and that's a lot to take in in a few seconds and you're still hoping yeah yeah and my cousin who's a radiographer I said to her I know you would never do this but it did remind me what an important role a radiographer plays Mm -hmm. um and how that could have been better Mm. yeah um because I and and she even said didn't you couldn't you tell you weren't pregnant anymore you know what it's like to be pregnant and it's like well even if you do know you don't want to believe no that way. and I was still hoping that she might go oh there's the there's the heartbeat you know so that kind of um communication skills and I think it's quite hard for people who go into health services and they have this intelligence that helps them be really good at these things they need to be good at mm. And we also need emotional intelligence. Yeah. You, you know. need a heart. Yeah, mm. because I mostly had that with almost everyone I came into contact with. Um, and even when Hawaii needed to be moved around, have the Von Tuss, you know, when a doctor comes in in gum boots, you're like, oh, that looks pretty serious <laughs> in your freezing worker boots. But he was jovial and kind and mm. I just don't think that that's too much to ask and maybe she did a bad day too but she managed to make that quite a lot worse Mm. so what happened following that um um so so baby wouldn't come away um so actually I was too shocked to say anything like I didn't even put in a complaint I didn't do anything just sort of walked out in the days and both of us did so um and this is, you know, like I've had two children at that point and you just don't expect that things will go wrong in that way and um, went home and had only just told my work so I had to tell them the opposite and decided to go back to Rotorua and um, because baby wouldn't come away then I went back to my midwife and she helped me, um, you know, go into hospital and, and for baby to come away and to, for, to wait for me to basically birth um, baby already gone though. And um, and so we were able to take baby to a uh, to the Urupa to Scotty's papa to lie there. <laughs> His mum said, "Are you allowed to do that?" And we're like, "We don't care. We're doing it." Mm. Um, you know, tiny, tiny little thing, only nine weeks. So, um, in having that karakia and being able to have that release, I'm really grateful. I didn't have any further complications, mm. but I mindfully went. Um, I need at least six months to not even try yeah. to have another baby. But it confirmed to me, I, you know, I've been worrying about going from two kids to three. How do you do that? It's so full on. I don't know that I'd ever imagined that. And then after I lost that baby, I knew uh, there was someone missing and that there we, you know, we definitely needed to have another baby who was my Nassim. So, yeah, all of those things. But I, I, I very much said to myself, I'm not going to try to do anything, ask any more of my body for at least six months. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it's, it's a lot. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, physically and, yeah, everything else as well. 
Yeah, um, so that was four-year gap. Sometimes people comment on that. I say, oh, that's a big gap. You've got your first two who are less than two years apart and then um, then four years. And I go, oh, yeah, yeah, because there was a baby in between, but that baby didn't get to be with us, so, yeah. Well, that's a good point. And one mm. thing that Jess and I had talked about prior to this interview was our own experiences with friends and whanau who have lost babies before. And I can be pretty honest and say that I don't think I've handled it very well because mm. I don't know what it's like. And certainly in the experience of my own family, there has been loss before, but we've been so crippled by the possibility of hurting them even more by bringing it up that it actually made it worse. Yeah. Um, so I guess my part I would be, how would you have wanted your whanau or friends to acknowledge it or, or bring it up or still continue to acknowledge it now? Well, um, a man I was working with at the time had, a, had I think, maybe two or three miscarriages in, in, with him and his wife, and he said, we have a piece of art, we have something that's in our house so that we can always see that we remember those babies, and I thought that was a lovely thing to do, so I did that as well, and that's right in our kitchen. It's a um, piece called Matariki, and so that's, you know, a reference, and we can touch it and talk about it. So I guess, um, you know, I, I took a lead in some ways, and mm. but it really has to be how someone feels. I mean, I, a extremely tragic thing happened when Hawaii was six months old. A friend of mine had full-term stillbirth, and it was awful, and I didn't know... I didn't want to, you know, put more questions on her emotional labour, but I didn't know if I should go. Exactly. And mm. I, um, yeah, and, and I was devastated for her. And it was on the coast, so it was quite, and I didn't know whether to go. And I said, honey, I don't want to put more stuff on you, but I don't know if I should bring our boy. And she said, bring our baby. Mm. And so she wanted to see him and um, it was one of the most heartbreaking tangi I've ever been to. But um, she she gave me a really good lead on how to talk about it and she made that baby's name her company name. Mm. Um, so that name is always spoken. Yeah. I, and and like I say, how, of, um, how we included baby is recognition of Mayana's name as well. So everyone's got just got to find their way mm. but... Um, not talking about it, I don't think helps. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, especially can... in circumstances where it's so often one of the questions we're asked as mums is how many babies do you have? How yeah. many people in your family? And I just, you know, if I were to ever lose a baby, I wouldn't want to say um, how many are here physically because yeah. you don't want to be doing a disservice to the baby that was still there, yeah. but just not here. Yeah, yeah, and these sort of innocent questions sometimes yeah. are really triggering. Yes, or, exactly, and yeah. kind of hurtful. So, how about yeah, we we find a better way of asking them, or do mm. we even need to ask them? And mm. um, see, my friend who who lost her who had her stillbirth, she's different to me. Like. Um, me and her best friend are similar and we're probably emoting all over the place and having emotions and she's like, I'm, I'm moving on now. I'm like, okay. <laughs> um, so that's the other thing as well is that some people need to deal with it another way. So mm. I, I think my only advice could be to read how they are feeling and if they want to talk about it. Mm. Um, and I, I quite often say to people, I'm, I'm thinking of you. I'm just mm. thinking of you thinking of our baby. And, um, mm. yeah, and so that they can – they can just deal with it and they want to because grief's massive. I guess that's one thing that um, I'm grateful for with my losing my mum is um, I've got the I've got the t-shirt of what it feels like to to have a grief really close to you. So I can see when people um, now friends my age are only just starting to lose their parents and they're sometimes underestimating how hard that is. Mm. They sort of throw themselves back into work and go, oh, this is a biggie. Mm. <laughs> you know, the sun just fell out of your sky. Remember, this is a big thing. Yeah. So understanding what how grief turns up mm. is important. Um, and grief as women, sometimes that's grief because we're not having babies as we want to, like they're not happening mm. fast enough. Sometimes it's grief for how uh, we gave birth and it wasn't the story that we hoped for. Mm. Um, sometimes it's grief for a relationship, mm. just for how it's it, how this, um, how your story is turning out. So, mm. yeah, I just all, all we can do is be mindful. And I always say to um, women, I don't, I don't have any advice for having babies except that 
trust yourself because you know your baby better than anyone mm. and you have mama instinct and you know yourself and uh, your puku, you know, does know and, and it's really hard even if people are trying to tell you what to do and that they're, they're experts and they're in medicine but I still think that when we're in touch with our female intuition then we we should write the script on what we want to do. Um I know I don't I don't know if you'd call it stigma, but there's a lot of so in the first sort of twelve weeks of being hapu, there's a lot of um hush hush and yeah, you know, yeah, for yeah. that um you know, that that's the the period of time that you're most likely to miscarry. Yeah. So often people don't share that news with, mm. you know, and then possibly they lose their baby and yeah, so what sort of what are your sort of fakaru around mm, that I, trimester, maybe from your own experience or just from the dialogue out there, I suppose? Yeah. Around? And I had said that, you know, the silence around the first trimester does isolate women and mm. but it's a personal thing because mm. but if you're feeling sick and you can't tell people why, that's yeah. hard. You don't have to mm. I mean, to me it's totally up to you. Mm. And there's an opportunity to tell people who will support you. Mm. Um so I think yeah, I, I don't like it how we are just sort of battling on. And as other, as other women, you can see it, eh? Like you can see that look on Wahine sometimes when they're happy and you're like, I think. <laughs> but if she doesn't want to tell me, then that's all good. Um, and then I had a friend say to me, oh, yeah, I was talking to someone. It was such a random thing that happened. And she goes, oh, yeah, no, I was in New York. I don't know why she's in New York. Talking to so-and-so and we thought you'd put on weight. We thought you were pregnant. I'm like, what? Why are you gossiping about my weight in New York? This is so weird. But um, that's so what happens to women. So I mm. think in the first trimester, see how you feel. And it might feel really um, precious to you and so you don't want to share it with anyone. It might feel too intimate and mm. you don't want anyone to know. It might feel like you that's part of you protecting yourself and creating your ahuru moe, your, your safe haven for you and your pipi. Mm. But... Also, there's an opportunity to go, I'm newly pregnant, just, you know, I'm excited and I'm happy and I'm a bit bit nervous. So what had happened at my work is I'd only just told them and um, a boss I had at the time, we went out for a work thing and I said, look, I can't have this champagne. And they was like, yay, we're going to have champagne anyway. And um, he likes to write the occasion on the champagne champagne cork as to why they drank it and so I've still got the one that says um, Stacey's pregnancy so that was cute Um, and it's quite nice to have mementos in that in your own way but yeah I it's really personal Mm. as to and sometimes it's it's financial you know like if your work isn't that happy about it even though they don't have any choice about how they respond to it or if your work isn't very far no friendly yeah that's why yeah Mm. and men don't have to deal with that and also men don't have to deal with people going, hmm, uh, how long is she going to be away? Mm-hmm. How many babies? Um, also, is there even a maternity leave, a parental leave uh, set up? Mm-hmm. I mean, I know a friend who had um, has an adopted baby, so they didn't know that was going to happen. And it was like, I have one week's notice that I'm going to be a mother. Mm-hmm. You know, so there's all those things that come up around process at mahi. Mm. But I think it, one thing that's good is that we're better at talking about um, women's rights and how parental leave is something that's more valued. So structurally we're seeing it's more valued because it's longer mm. and because it's more embedded in that laws are changing about it. Yeah, definitely. Mm. Um, just reflecting back on a kōrero you shared earlier about deciding, um, you know, ko te reo Māori, te reo tuatahi, mm. o tō pepe. Um, so at that point, what what stage of your real journey were you at yeah it was ambitious (laughs) so I would say I was like an intermediate speaker which we can feel like an intermediate speaker for a long time right but Mm. so Scotty and I could um stay in real Maori for like maybe 50% of the time at that point we were doing that he um was already a fluent speaker um and he'd never been in a relationship where he you know a long-term relationship where with a Maori speaker as well so this was all our probably you know real 
um, idealistic, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, First newlyweds, baby, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, whirlwind romance, yeah. all of that. Because, um, yeah, we, we had only got together in 2004, engaged 2005, married and had first baby 2006. So, um, yeah, it was all like, uh, okay, right. Oh, so this is what it's supposed to be like. Good, let's go. Um, but I was, it was, it was hard. It was hard mm. for me to stay in the deal all day, every day. And it's so my personality that I hadn't even figured out that I could just change my mind. Because it was this important um, to us. This is like, you know, this is part of like my vow to not only my husband, but to myself and to my whanau, mm. where that we are reclaiming this for our whanau and te reo ukaipo. So just as I'm feeding the babies um, their breast milk, you know, I'm feeding them their ancestral language as what we consider to be their birthright. Mm. Um, so we're not going little three little Takarere presenters at all. It's just that they will not have to work as hard and fight to learn their own mm. ancestral language. Um, te reo ukaipo, um, pere yamawa, because that's what we had to do. So along the way, because, um, you know, some people have said to me, well, that's pretty disheartening. If it was hard for you guys, then how are we supposed to do it? I'm like, well, I wasn't um, born like this. I remember at the time I was really struggling with passives. So I'd passive sentences. I was like, wow, I get that. Okay, I get the order of them, but I don't know why I'm saying that. And then I remember it was, wasn't until I was talking to my son and in one conversation I used it as an instruction to pick something up and then to say something had been done to his bike and I went oh my goodness okay click. right click 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 can you just explain what a passive sentence oh, so is oh so passive sentence is like um you can use it as a instruction wash your hands and then you can use it as um a description of what has been done to something so kua uh, so the dishes have been washed yeah. so one says wash it one says it's been washed yeah. and it's a really hard thing because in your head in English you don't think about the mm. cup having been washed mm. you go you tend to think more about washing a cup mm. so um so those, what you were learning you were able to apply with yeah. and alongside your yeah and, and we started a play group at El Māori play group because I didn't have any mates who were on the same buzz mm. I didn't think but those people are now some of my best friends mm. um, so that's how we started Māori for grown-ups and then we've made an online platform we've got 30,000 people on that um, but also doing wānanga with whānau about te reo te kāinga and quite often in wānanga that we teach at, it's all about te reo te kāinga and then wrote our books. Um, so basically one one of the things was in realising how hard it was, we want to make it easier for other yeah. people. Mm. So that's why Māori at Home uh, was our book about how you can do th- have these things, a little or a lot, mm. that can bring te reo Māori into your home. And so, you know, my kids have, have taught us both so much. And that includes Scotty. I mean, he didn't need to know about how to say burping or bassinet or anything at the playground, even though he's a fluent speaker. So it's a new vernacular for him, a new set of words for him to learn. So that's why um, we really just wanted to make it easier potentially for other people because it was hard to find all the resources. And it's like, I don't know, I just go, if it's not built, then let's make it. Yeah, which is yeah, amazing. I certainly have to say from our experience as a whānau, you are everywhere in our family. We <laughs> are there. you. Yeah, pretty much. No, pretty much because actually our babies are such a great motivation for mm. doing things differently, as you say. And after we had our baby, um, we were actually gifted all of your puka puka. Mm. And so throughout mat leave, I was doing them and Peter was doing them. And um, one of your karakia that you shared, I think, it must have been around COVID. Yes, everyone yeah. was really anxious. Baby now knows it off by heart. Wow. Because we don't know. We, we try and use Māori as much as we can, but it's like she knows. Yeah. Um, you see the breathing change, eh? Totally. And, yeah. and as soon as we, we do her karakia by her cot before bed, she'll just look up and stare every night. And before she's wriggling because she doesn't want to go to bed, but there's really something in it, I think. Mm. she I think she understands more than I do, to be honest. But she will, and that's the thing is they can do it one or two year, years old and it could go, Marco the Karakia. I want to Yeah, and so those are the things that we realize as far now. So I want to um, 
is the karaki you're talking about mm. and Scotty wrote this and and the whole point of sharing it with people is going you know the origin you know that it comes from this whānau so you can safely know that it's meant for you mm. um and I love how it's taken on a life of its own mm. and people have you know started to make wall art out of it and things like that but then we you know Scott is quite strategic about the words he puts in there ayo is a really beautiful word of big calm um, and that it's repetitive, ayoana te rangi, ayoana te whenua, ayoana te ao katoa. So the, the, the sky is calm, the earth is still, and all, you know, we're all calm, um, which is not always how bedtime is, but, <laughs> yeah, 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 you know, yeah. for that particular <laughs> I moment. I was just going to say that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's, you know, like, and by the way, I've had terrible sleepers, so I always think it works out somehow you know like if you're fortunate to have a good birth then don't worry it'll come and get you they'll either have colic or they'll be bad sleepers and conversely you could have an awful birth um like a friend of mine did and I was like oh please come on come on through with this calm baby and she's got a really calm baby you know so it it kind of everyone has different stuff right Mm -hmm. And so these are all tactics. For me, karakia was really helpful um, because it still took a lot of brain power for me to speak Māori. Mm-hmm. And so having these consistent things that I'd say all through the day and little jingles that I'd make up um, meant that I didn't have to think about what I was going to say sure. so much. So for karakia kai, this actually um, was my daughter's first words. So I think mm-hmm. she must have been about eight or nine months. And I remember I'd gone back to work and I was really tired. I was doing a breakfast shift. And so I was feeding her with one accorded, like no vibe at all. <laughs> I was going, And I remember the way look on her face, she was going, here it comes, here it comes, <laughs> and those were her first words, like not mama, not yeah. papa, but that repetition mm-hmm. had reminded her, it had set her up to be able to do that. And that's Miss eighth, the 808 water birth. <laughs> that's her, so her, right? And so um, that helped me. And I'd make these little jingles um, to go um, like, to, for changing nappies. Me tini to kope. Me tini 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 tini. Me tini to kope. And one for putting on pare huhare, um, their bib, just so that I could remember it. And I'd use bony em and go pare huhare emo. Pare huhare, and it's probably from working in radio, right? <laughs> but those, Scotty and I, it helped us remember things. Tiemiemi, the slide, all of those things were just tactics to make sure that I had something that I could kind of go landmarks through the day, things that I didn't have to use my brain to think about because I already knew it. Mm. I could sing it and just changes up the energy when you're tired or whatever mm. and just means another little input of Māori you can fit into your day. Oh, I love that. Great ideas. Such a nerdy mum. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's cool. It's given me lots of, um, yeah, lots of ideas for baby. She's starting to eat solid, so I have to pick your brains about what the words are for bib and yeah. all the other things. And those are all doable, no matter yeah. what yeah, level you're at. Definitely. Yeah, definitely. And that's the thing. I, I know it's hard. We think, oh, okay, I'm not Harry Hart out, so I'm just not going to do anything, and, and it feels like a luxury just to, or a chore to add another mm. thing on. But it actually is, for me, I find really soothing as well. Yeah. And I feel um, I feel comforted because that's the thing about our real or any tikanga we engage in because we know we're part of something bigger than ourselves mm. and that this is an our whakapapa. This is our Māori tanga mm. um, supporting us. And I, and I think, you know, I could feel very sad about all of our practices that have been removed from us, mm. but then I feel excited too that our people are reclaiming. Mm. And that's particularly in terms of our wahine, um, changing our narratives around ikura, going back to what was always there about rongoa, about, um, you know, like say biting on on something for um, for pain relief, all of that. Mm. And and um, karakia. So karakia as incantations. It's a similar thing to what I was doing with hypnobirthing because it's just putting yeah. yourself in a mental space mm. and a way to a space that is focused on what is positive and helpful to you rather than what is mm. troubling you. Mm. And being intentional. Yes. Yeah. Kia ora. Yeah, yeah. That's a really good way to say it. Mm. Yeah. I find. Yeah, we're sort of in, at that, in that on that journey around karakia with mm. you know things that the kids are learning. You know like rote learning I suppose or they're just kind of just saying it because that's what 
they say it kohanga or whatever, but actually creating spaces to have a koro about those, yeah. you know, those words and who are you? Is it yeah, even the difference between prayer and incantation and yeah, yeah. um affirmation and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And it's and also you learn so much. I remember a friend of ours coming around when our uh, Mata Mua when Hawaii was about four and he came in and he just looked a little bit blown away and we were like, Get He's like, Yeah, I think I just had a conversation about photosynthesis with your four year old in Māori and I've never done that before. <laughs> and like, you know, Scotty had looked, he'd made sure he, you know, knew about photosynthesis. You know, it's like any parent when they mm. ask you the questions, no matter what language, and they say, Why is the sky blue? Yeah, yeah. And you go, Ah, yeah, about that. <laughs> and so, you know, you have to look up new things. So there's no whakama in having to learn new words. No. Um, yeah, like pōkerehu. We were just talking this morning online about how that's a word for doing something unintentionally. Pōkerehu. Yeah, pōkerehu. And so that is when you, um, so with kids it's like, I didn't mean to. He hauatanoa. You know, like it's just a... It was an accident. And so sometimes, you know, in your head, if you grew up with one language and hearing that and what your parents said to you, then to flip it, you're kind of rewriting the script of what we say now, Fano. And then I've adapted things like I've gone to Parenting Place and they have this saying that I liked where they say, um, in our Fano, we do this, because that's a way of saying, I don't mind what happens in other people's whānau, mm. but this is the culture of our whānau. Yeah. In our whānau we do this, I say, i tēnei whānau, ka ke tātou. You know, mm. like this is the way that we do things. Mm. Yeah. So te reo Māori really has been um, very integral as a mama for you and maintaining your um, mental, emotional well-being. Oh, yeah, for sure. And it's been challenging, you know, mm. like um, to to do that as an intermediate speaker, mm. I was very, very tired. Mm. And, but, but as I say, it didn't even occur to me that I could just give up. I didn't even think of that. <laughs> but once you establish that relationship with your child in the deal, they will speak to you in the deal. They'll still, at 14 years old, turn to someone in the room and speak English to them and Māori to us, mm. you know, because that's our um, te reo tūtaki, that's the language we met in and that feels awkward not to do that. And I've even found as they're becoming teenagers, of a 14-year-old and a 12-year-old, talking about um, puberty, talking about all of the body changes and relationships, I find easier in Māori. Mm. I mean, my kids said to me, they say, um, well, they're about five or six, they say, how the kupu pākehā mō tara? I went, oh, um, vagina. <laughs> and they went, vagina? How tēnā kupu? Tēnā rerege tēnā kupu? Like, what is that weird word? And I was going, yeah, it is, it's not a great Great sounding word. Um, <laughs> highlighter. How did I kupuna? But oh my goodness, but much less awkward in Maori. Yeah. 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 You know, in really respectful, beautiful ways that, that we talk about um, you know, parts of our bodies and acts mm. and those kind of things. So yeah, I'm I'm just really grateful for it and I would hate for them to have missed out. Because mm. even though I didn't hear it as a kid, I you know you know it. I I just refuse to believe that uh, Maori people don't have within them, residing within them, the the pitomata, the mm. you know the potential mm. to understand the real. And that's even if their ears and their head can't can't translate it mm. at a way to a level they feel it. Yeah. We feel it. Yeah. Mm. I actually have dreams sometimes in Māori. I can't yeah. speak Māori. And I wake up and I'm like, how did I? And I don't even know the words, yeah. but it must be that ancestral knowledge yeah. that somewhere, genetic mm. memory or something. Well, totally. It's like um, te kore. You know, the, te kore is not nothingness. It's yeah. the potential yeah. and it's that something still exists even when it doesn't exist. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Beautiful. I feel like in our part two quarter, we have to bring you back to talk about parenting teenagers because that's a whole other. <laughs> yeah, I am working on that. Yeah, yeah. No, but yeah, for sure. There's all these stages. And so every one we've done, you know, we used to focus much more on, on little kids, mm. on um, Tamariki Kohungahunga, because that was where we were at. But then the book that I wrote, My First Words in Māori, was because I loved all those kind of books and they're not storybooks but they are also resource that actually work for kids and then the um, flashcards and all of those things just knowing that um, yes we have everything on devices now but 
actually for our acquisition, it's helpful to see something in a different way and to be able to hold it. Mm. And that helps us remember things, yeah. Mm. Even when we're so tired. Yeah, hard. <laughs> I feel you. I've been up since 4 a.m. Oh, my mama. <laughs> this is probably a good time to wrap up, I reckon. What do you think? Yeah. Any last bacado or patai you guys want to say? How do we wrap this thing up again, Jess? <laughs> yeah. Nah, thank you, Stace. Thank you so much for um, sharing your energy and your story with us. I think so much came out of that today. For me mm. particularly, what I learned was around, yeah, today all that, that kōrero really um, veered off into how to raise our babies and real and... Um, but especially what you shared around the loss of your baby and, and how you still keep their memory alive, I think is really special and something that I think someone it's going to be meaningful for someone who's listening to this. And I think um, we've, you know, you're a very, you're a household name or is that what you, is that how you say know, it? No idea. <laughs> um, but I think, you know, anyone who's listened today will, will have learned something. New about you. Yeah, I feel like I should have been taking notes, but lucky we can go back and listen. (laughs) (laughs) And I just, I love all of the stages of our mamatanga, you know, like to to be a a mother, um, whether we physically gave birth to these babies or Mm. if we are nurturers um, in a different way, I think is something that bonds us Mm. as wahine. And I love how um, we have such beautiful knowledge in our in our culture and our kōrero um, and in who we can be. So yeah, I mean it's really important that we protect that, mm. that we look after uh, this knowledge that was nearly lost, mm. but also that um, we acknowledge when when Fano are having a hard time. Um, I know when. I just remember the story I will tell. Um, when my daughter was born, um, my midwife said, oh, our mama has had her baby taken yesterday and she, well, a couple of days ago and she keeps on coming back to the ward, so just make sure you keep your baby with you. And so I did do that and I felt really, um, really, really mindful of taking her with me everywhere, but I had a real heavy heart for that mama. And that if she's coming back to get her baby, she wants to be with her baby. So no matter what's going on for a whānau, can we please just try to make it so that it can work and so that we can be our, our best selves and get through what's making it really hard for ourselves, but always to have aroha for each other. There's no better way of doing things. It's just your way of doing things in your best way. So, mm. yeah, kia kaha tato, ma, ma, ma. Kia ora tēnā koe. This is my Ikuruwaka, Stories of Habutanga. This podcast was produced by Hapai Tahawoda with support from Norku Dao Like Minds. Fakaitia te whakafiu i te tangata. Support include and empower our whānau experiencing mental health challenges during Habutanga.